got on your journey, would you do it again? Let's stay connected through the stream and be my virtual friend. Losses and wins, ups and downs, I wanna know where you been. Chill on wheels, yeah. Chill on wheels, yeah. Chill on wheels. Chop it with me on a live on Chill on Wheels. Sit back, relax. Chill on wheels, chill on wheels. Chill on wheels, chill on wheels. Chop it with me on the live on Chill on Wheels. Sit back, relax, take a ride. Chill on wheels, chill on wheels. You are now tuned in to Chill on Wheels with your host, Big Red. Come in and check out the positive vibes. And when we make it to the top, we all gon' shine. Chill on wheels, chill on wheels, chill on wheels. Come in and check out the positive vibes. And when we make it to the top, we all gon' shine. Chill on wheels. It's your boy, Big Red. Welcome to Chill on Wheels, where I make sure your story is heard, your grind is shown, and where your voice matters. Today, we have our guest, Tony Gunn. He's going to speak to us about the importance of self-education and community impact. Many people overlook the value of organizing the community and building a village. Tony's going to guide us through the steps we can take in order to develop our community socially economically and politically so let's hear his journey what's up tony how we doing today we doing well we doing well first off uh chill man i, I just thank you for having me on the cast man and i just want to you know thank god and everything he's done in my life um and i'm just happy to be here bro all right so before we get into the interview i always ask my guests the same question what are three things in life that you cannot live without all right so my three things it'll have to be number one the most high god uh because that's how we all got here right um the the, the second thing would be family without family you know, without feeling that that void of family, man, it's just hard to go through your journeys, man. You know, it's hard to go through this thing alone, man. But when you got family, you got people that can hold you together and hold you accountable. And then my third thing, I say the spirit of love, man. Um, love makes you do great things for other people. It makes you think, you know, outside of yourself. So, yeah, the spirit of love, man. If it wasn't for love, I know that I would have flew off the handles a long time ago. But somebody loved me enough and I loved somebody else enough to make sure we were all good. So, yeah. Hey, sounds good. So, before we just hop into the interview process and get on today's topic, uh, I just want to reflect a moment and let the community know, for one, this is my brother. Yeah. For two... I'm proud of my brother. For three, he's came a long way from where he was and where he is today. And we're going to recognize that. So at, at this moment, uh, one thing about Chill on Wheels, we talk to a lot of gamers and we talk to a lot of truck drivers. You are a gamer. So we're going to. Something gonna, like that. 
So we gonna dig into that for a moment, just because okay. that's my community. Right. So, right, right. what was your first system that you played on? Okay, so my first system that I ever played on was uh, well a Nintendo sixty four. So you know you had the, the little games, you had to blow it, make sure it was clean, and then you stuck it in the socket, man. The first, the first game I had on it was Sonic the Hedgehog. Um, I think I had in, in Mario Kart Racing with Donkey Kong and all that. Those were my first games. So, yeah, Nintendo 64. So when you think about gaming, what is your favorite game of all time? Like, what's the one game that you, that you would never get old playing? Man, I'll tell you, man, Madden never get old to me. I remember, you know, I'm still young, bro, but I remember when Madden 99 came out, man, and then they drifted into Madden 2000. I mean, it looked like Techno Bowl, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. But you had people on there, man, uh, like Marshall Falk and, and Kurt Warner and stuff like that was on the game. Uh, McNair was on the game. Uh, man, you name it, bro. That was a good year. That was a good year, and that really made me fall in love with Madden, and I just haven't stopped playing it since. There you go. There you go. All right. So we got a we got a pretty tough topic today. Right. I'm not going to say tough, but it's awakening topic. This yeah. might wake a few people up, which is a good thing in my eyes, and that's why we're going to talk about this today. Uh, so, so my first question I have for you, Tony, my brother, tell us about your background. What made you want to get involved with community and self-education? Right. So uh, I grew up in Knoxville, Tennessee, um, adjacent to East Knoxville. So right across the train tracks, you cross the street, you'll be over there on the east side of Knoxville, man. And, you know, I went to Fulton High School. Uh, ended up going to Maryville College to play football, transferring into UT, finishing my degree in sociology and political science. Um, that's really where, uh, during that time, I gained my love for, you know, the the politics. I gained my love for just people and the way people move in this economy. And um, I'll tell you what, it really started back in 2016. It was a lot going on in the media. So uh, you had like Mike Brown and stuff like that that was just like, you know, beating us upside the head. Uh, the government act like they didn't want to do anything. Uh, Trump had just got elected. It was just a, a horrible time uh, for people. And it, it almost seemed like we lost hope. But I know for me, that made me go into, you know, self-education and self-reflection. Um, and I said, I, from this day forward, I'm going to stop uh, blaming everybody else for my condition. I'm going to work for the rest of my life to get my people out of the condition that we're in. Um, I do understand that, like, you know, we have to lean on the government for some things, but there's some things in your individual community that you can change yourself, man. So that's where my passions lie. That's kind of my background. And, now I'm here uh, in Knoxville again, working for the Knoxville Leadership Foundation, uh, helping young adults 16 to 29 uh, find jobs and get education. Uh, 
when they're high school dropouts or they have some type of legal involvement. So we want to really reform this side of the city and make sure that everybody has equity and equal opportunity. What were the steps you needed to take in order to get where you are now? Well, I feel like this, man, a, a lot of my homeboys um, that I grew up with, they didn't make it to the college stage. They didn't make it to, you know, further in their education past high school. And I said to myself, I know it isn't a silver bullet, but I have to educate myself beyond, you know, just high school. I had to get some post-secondary education, man. So, you know, that was my first step. And my second step was within that education, finding my passions and finding things that I was really, you know, passionate about. And then also, too, um, I had to educate myself because every time you go to college, you're going to get their education. You're going to get that European westernized education. But it's important that you go in the fields that you love and that you can find the truth. So I did a lot of truth seeking, a lot of things that I know how the system works. I had to go in, I had to look at it through an Afrocentric perspective, an African-American perspective, a black perspective. Um, and I had to educate myself almost in certain areas. Now I did have some professors that taught on the real issues, uh, but when you want a comprehensive knowledge, you have to self-educate, man. So that's, that's the steps that I had to take from college to self-education, and now here I am doing the work. Man, man, what a story. So what sort of support did you have around you during your journey? Well, first and foremost, you know, like I said, one thing I couldn't live without is family. And, you know, I had you in my corner, bro. Um, I had my older brother, Marlon, in my corner, um, rooting, on, rooting me on. But most importantly, I had the spirit of my mother with me at all times. My mother is the backbone to family. My mother is the backbone to everything that I move and do in this earth, in this world. She gave me the blueprint to succeed. Um, growing up in 59, my mother didn't have a lot of opportunities, so she made sure that when I grew up, I had more opportunities than she did and she made the world a better place for me. Um, and she made sure that even when I was doubting myself or slacking, she made sure that I was on track at all times. Now it took some reinforcement, uh, but I think I've uh, made it here pretty good. So yeah, shouts out to my mom, man. My mom is the number one for everything. So did that change your journey did it make it difficult or did it make it easier with your support okay so it, it it made it a little bit uh easier i would say um because as you know i lost my father at a young age so i lost my father around 11 going to 12 and i just knew from that day forward that i had to lean on my my family for everything i had to lean on my mother too and I trusted my mother to guide me and direct me as a man, because during that time, you know, things happen. You know, we really growing as men going into middle school and then going into high school where you kind of need that father figure. And, and that would have been, been essential. But I think my mother put me around great men, especially my uncles and stuff. 
uh, that helped me through that time. So I think it was easier, but the journey wasn't easy. So to dig into it a little bit, why is being involved at the local level so critical? Being involved at the local level is critical because this is the level that you can control. A lot of people only want to go vote or only want to go do something when they see it on the news or, you know, they're watching Fox or CNN. You know, it's on your Twitter feed. Somebody's getting killed or whatever. We don't have to wait until somebody is murdered for us to start moving. There's things you can do. There's elected officials on this level, on the local and state level that you actually have control over when you do vote. You don't just vote for the big president. You vote for, you know, district attorneys. You have to look at these people. You have to analyze these people. You see these people. These are people that you can call on the phone and reach. Um, so we have to make sure that the people who are controlling our lives and, and making laws and policies for our everyday lives, we have control over. So it's so critical because it's it's literally life or death. It's literally, you know, be broke or be sustainable. It's, it's that critical. And one wrong policy, one wrong law could lead to years of disaster. So let me ask you this. What have you personally seen locally that's critical growing up in Knoxville? What have you seen personally that's, that's critical? Okay, so I think the first thing I will say is the education in, in Knoxville is kind of screwed up. Um, we, we work hard to try to reform the education system, but, you know, it's really hard uh, for our public schools in Knoxville uh, to, number one, retain students, number two, not only graduate students, but get students to the level that they need to be at, and there's not enough attention to it. So you see a lot of kids not graduating and, and dropping out. You see a lot of teachers that experience teaching burnout because they're working all these hours, they're working all these days, but they're not even getting paid a livable wage. I remember being in high school and uh, one of my teachers was literally living in a, you know, uh, what do they call it? Like a, a studio home uh, with no cable, uh, barely running heat and air, like she could barely afford to live, but she came every day and she taught us. And, and you can imagine what type of stresses uh, that puts on not only her, but the way she taught the class. So not paying attention to, you know, the health of the teachers and the mental health of the students is something big that I see in Knoxville. And another thing too is a lot of people in Knoxville, they lack hope when it comes to you know economics and job opportunities. What you'll see is a lot of folks, they resort to game banging, they drug dealing. That's just how it is. When you don't have a good job, that's just exactly what it is, man. They, they just fly off the handle. Well, I know for me personally, you know, as you know, I grew up in Knoxville, of course. Right. But uh, what what I seen locally is it's like a a, a revolving circle. 
So when you have people that grow up in Walter P., Austin Holmes, Christenberry Heights, you right. know, all, all these public housings, uh, it's like a circle of life, man. You had the kids growing up. You have the adults gang banging, selling drugs, and then you right. have their parents on the drugs. And it's like the circle just continues to carry on and just goes in a circle. And uh, I kind of feel what you're saying. It's like, you know, people don't have hope. People don't right. know what they can do or what's out there to do. They feel like they're just stuck in that mentality that may that maybe the system put them in mm-hmm. or we could go into a whole a whole other topics on that issue but right. uh that's what i've seen personally in in the knoxville community and uh let me say this for people that have not lived in public housing not experienced that uh you would not know what we're talking about (laughs) but this is this is why we're talking about it because a lot of people don't talk about this issue and the problems going on in the african-american communities and it's not just african-american communities there there's uh white communities there's hispanic communities that go through the same thing so it's not mm-hmm. just the African American community, but we're specializing that today. And uh, with that being said, we're gonna go on to the next question. Uh, well, n- maybe not the next question, but we're gonna give some facts of the African American community, and uh, we want to emphasize the African American community in America. How are those communities being affected? at the local level by community development or lack thereof what do you feel right right so there is a lack of community development there is a lack of uh producing self you know sufficiency doing for self uh there's a lack of uh jobs and opportunity um that exists in the black communities and you know uh specifically for knoxville um, poverty is so heavy in the black community. Um, the total, the percentage for poverty in Knoxville, Tennessee is around about 27 to 28%. But you got to think about it of that 27 to 28%, 41% of those people are African American people. So you look at the numbers right there, the disparity, it just doesn't line up. So you have to ask yourself, why? Our, our black community, why black male and black females are not getting educated at the same rates as other ethnicities. Why are we not getting jobs? How come we are living in public housing? How come we can't afford to buy a house, get credit, get and move into affluent neighborhoods? Um, how come we can't make our own neighborhood affluent? Um, when you start asking those questions, I think there's a bigger thing Uh, that we have to deal with, and that's a systematic oppression. That's things that the laws and this government from hundreds and hundreds of years ago put in place 
to disadvantage the African-American and the African-American in the United States wasn't even seen as a full human being. So we're seeing the effects of that, the effects of 400 years of slavery. And now we're coming into a system where they say it's equal, but there's so many laws that deter African-Americans for enjoying the simple pleasures in life. So community development, there's none at all in most of these neighborhoods. Um, and where there is some community development, um, they're gentrifying those neighborhoods so that African-Americans are not or no longer the beneficiaries of those programs and those jobs that they're feeding in. Uh, so we have to be weary of that as well. So with that being said, I'm going to give a few um, tips or facts. We'll give a few facts. And this is all over America. So you gave us the stats in Knoxville, Tennessee. I'm going to give us some Correct. stats over America. So right now, college degrees are re are regarded as a primary vehicle for reducing poverty and closing the wealth gaps between people of color and whites. But there are still disparities that exist that are extremely alarming and we're about to go over them according to the uncf african-american students are less likely than white students to have access to ready to college ready courses mm -hmm. another note when black students do get access to honors or advanced courses they are vastly underrepresented black and latino students only make up 30 percent of ap students across mm -hmm. america 38%. And let's see, black students are often located in schools with less qualified teachers and teachers with lower salaries and who are newer to the discipline. Black students are less likely to be college ready. Black students spend less time in the classroom due to discipline, which hinders their access to quality education. Black students are twice as likely to be suspended without educational services as white students. Students of color are often concentrated in schools with fewer resources. And them are facts found. Uh, you can find the websites in the description on the link if you would like to go and reference this yourself. Uh, with that being said, Tony, what are the long-term effects of this sort of data? All right, so what you will see is over a long period of time, you will start seeing that black men and black women are not getting placed into lucrative jobs. They're not doing well at all, and it's cyclical poverty. So not only were your grandparents poor, now mama doesn't have a degree, so mama and daddy cannot support you and provide for you more than what their parents did. So that just leaves you into poverty completely. And what happens when a child is in poverty? Most likely they'll become a product of their own environment. So if, for instance, and I'm going to speak from, uh, you know, working with children personally, um, what I see is these kids have to feed mama, Daddy's not in the house. They probably got little brother, little sister. And on top of that, they're only 16, 17 years old. So what what good jobs can you get at that age? Not very many. 
Um, so they're going to result in getting money in ways which are not good for our community. Um, they're going to get it how they live and they're going to get that fast money. So that's what you will see long term. And also, too, what you'll see is a further wider wage gap. So you won't see any equity actually get put back in these neighborhoods. You will see uh, other foreign or minority people come in and buy up property. You'll see uh, Caucasian Americans buy up property in black neighborhoods and what and what do you say when you don't have a store when you don't have mr johnson's candy shop on on the side anymore there's no money being produced and rotated into the black community because it's spent elsewhere uh so not only do we not have enough money not only are we not getting enough opportunity but we're just putting the money that we do make the little bit of money that we do save into other cultures into other races and if, ethnicities and not putting them in our own community, man. So that's really just a, a, a scratch the surface of long-term effects. Uh, but there's many, many, many more that you can go and research yourself. Um, you can go to Georgetown's website. You can go to the Brookings Institute. Um, there's every single resource out there to educate yourself. You know, with us talking about this, it just came to my mind just now. We're living in the long-term effect at this moment. Right. We're living right. in the long-term effect at this moment. And the reason I say that, because our generation is broke, has nothing to show for it. Mm. And, and if we keep going the pace we're going and not recognizing the resources we do have and the knowledge we are giving and start using it, we're going to stay in this long-term effect. So that's right. why we're giving this pod. This is the key point of why we're doing this podcast today, everybody. So I just want that to be known. We are in the long-term effect right now. Right now. I, I totally agree. And I also agree that, you know, if we don't start to make changes now, so you have to be the sacrifice now so that your future generations can have a head start. Um, you're not going to have... Um, a silver bullet for right now. Not every black person is going to get money. Not every black person is going to get rich, but we can all start doing things in our community to make sure there's money flowing so that 10 years from now, 20 years from now, we'll have a good base for our future generations. If we don't get active in our community, if we don't try to save our community, our community will continue to be plagued by poverty, violence, and it's just a lack of education all the way around. So that's why we're doing this podcast. It's just so important that we get unity in our community. We have to get unity in our community. That doesn't mean everybody do the same thing, but we have to have everybody with different skills being those moving parts of one body, of one community. And like my mother always says, it's not enough of us thinking about the all of us man so true so true all right so let's dig into this what does it mean to develop a community socially explain that to us for sure for sure so basically what you have to know is when you develop a community socially that means that all races and ethnicities get a fair shot 
So you develop policies and things like that, that will make sure that specifically African-Americans have an even playing field and that's fair. Uh, so you have to create those policies and laws to make it fair, to make it safe. Um, you have to create those policies and laws so that black people won't be targeted by the police at higher rates, won't be murdered by the police at higher rates, won't have the school to prison pipeline be so prevalent. If we develop the community socially, then all, not all, but most of African-American issues and the issues that are plaguing us in America will start to make a change and start to make a turn for our good. But until we do that, until we say enough is enough, and until we dismantle all these racist systems in America, we will not move forward socially. So we have to even that playing field in that way. So that's what it means uh, to basically, you know, develop a community socially as a whole. Yeah, and one thing that I want to plug in on that is uh, socially. So for me, you know, it starts with, you know, one thing that communities used to be about, man, it, you know, one, one phrase that I love about what it used to be is that it takes a community to raise a child. Right. Communities don't know that now. You know, I, for everybody listening on this podcast, how many people know their next door neighbor? How many people know the person across the street from them? How many people know the person down the street from them? One thing I loved about our community, Tony, we knew everybody in the community. Right. We, we could go knock on the door. If I needed something, we could go down the street and ask for anything. If something was happening to a child outside, somebody would run out and help that child outside. We don't have that in America now. Why? Why? I, I'll say this. I'll say this. In some communities, that still exists. But what you are seeing is the communities being gentrified so you no longer know your next door neighbor because the rates are so high they can't afford the mortgage so your neighbors are literally moving out they they just can't afford to live in those spaces anymore um so literally caucasian americans or super rich people are just buying up these properties and selling them to whoever they want to at higher rates so what you're seeing is your neighborhoods start to change especially the neighborhood that I grew up, grew up in, that we honestly grew up in, chill. And, you know, we used to have the Browns in the back, and then we had Miss D back here from New Orleans, and then you had Big J on the corner down here and the Brandy and, you know, their family and all that stuff, and BT and different stuff like that. We used to know everyone, and now literally maybe two or three families that started with us over a decade ago are still here, but the rest of the block looks completely different. So that's what you're seeing. It's the gentrification. So let me ask you, is that done intentionally? Yes. So it's done intentionally because what they do is they pretty much prey on the poor. They prey on the poor 
they manipulate them and they move them out of areas. And once that flight happens, other people move in and that quote unquote increases the value of the space. So the average black person like me and you wouldn't be able to even afford a house uh, like this that we grew up in now because you know people who didn't get in early they just couldn't keep. Woo, but we about to hurt some people' feelings on this podcast today. Yeah. All right, <laughs> all right. Let's go. Let's see. Let's see. Uh, let me ask you this: What does it mean to develop a community economically? Well, that's that's totally easy. That's making sure that African American people have the equity that they're supposed to have have the money flow that they're supposed to have, uh, closing that wealth gap, making sure that we have Black-owned businesses, Black-owned banks. Back in the 60s and 70s, even in Knoxville, we had Magnolia Loaning Company. That was a Black-owned bank that used to lend money out to small business owners. We no longer have that, and, and you know, in our Black community, we have family uh, that are struggling right now with their business. You know, we have Andrews Electric that's been here for almost over 20 years, if not longer than that. That's a family business that's been in our family for a long period of time. And now what you're seeing is less and less business coming through. And, and what you see every day here is one business that used to be here 15, 20 years ago is no longer here because they just simply can't afford it and can't get the business. So if we have black families starting off a whole black family unit, mother, father, child, good jobs, businesses built that are built by black and for black people in their own community, then the community will be developed economically. But until then, until the money circulation uh, in the community improves, you'll see a lot of the same thing and that's cyclical poverty so let me ask you this tony what mm -hmm. work have you been doing specifically tying into both of these questions i just asked you what work have you been doing describe what do you do on an everyday basis right so what i do is i recruit uh 16 to 29 year olds who have had some type of run-in with the law or who have dropped out of school, we know that education is already hard for our people to get. And also too, a big barrier to getting high paying jobs or even decent livable wage paying jobs is legal involvement. If you have any type of charge, you will not be able to apply for even the simplest of jobs here in Knoxville, Tennessee and all over America. And what you see is, there is an increase in numbers of incarcerated individuals. And it's funny because black people only make about 13 to 14% of the whole total population of America. But some way, somehow, we have became over 40% of incarcerated folks. Now you can tell me that's by coincidence, but I'm gonna tell you that was designed on purpose to keep our people at the level that they're at. So when you have people 
that face these barriers, you have to eliminate it. So the work that I do in the community is I get these kids and these young adults education. They get their high school the equivalency free of charge. We pay court fees and we also make sure they get a decent job, not just a temp service job, but I'm talking jobs with skilled trades um, that's going to pay 60 and $70,000. Because if you look at what's going on in America, really with COVID-19 and a lot of things like that, you're seeing that people don't want to work and you're seeing jobs open up. And there is millions of jobs in America that needs to be filled just through skilled trades alone. So if I connect with employer partners, so my employer partners already know that the young adult that I'm going to send them are going to have some type of background. That's just inevitable. That's the nature of my work. But if I can get somebody out of their situation, get them education, get them a job with the skilled trade, they will be able to make a livable wage to support themselves and not only support themselves, but support their family. So that's the work that I do. Man, and it sounds like great work. And it sounds like you're making a good impact in the Knoxville community, man. Yes, All sir. right. So I'm going to give a couple more facts. We were talking mm -hmm. about the community economically, how, how to develop that. So a fact is across the country we must forge a new way to work together increase impact and mitigate the unintended or sadly sometimes intended consequences of not engaging the people who have been most impacted impacted by the structural racism and economic exclusions and finding solutions this is a quote by Joanna Trotter in a piece called Recovery. Recovery together, developing a collective and equitable approach to economic recovery. But let me, let me ask you this. How does that benefit the community today and tomorrow? All right. So this is how it's going to affect the community today and tomorrow. The more engaged that we are in our community, the better the health of the community will be. Number one, you have to get people knowledgeable about what's going on in their own community. You have to get people to see outside of their current situation. So you have different programs and organizations. You have the NAACPs. Uh, you have the National Urban League. Uh, you have so many different organizations in your own community that's going to get black people engaged into the simple things that will help them build the health and the wealth of their community. And um, tying really all of this back together uh, socially and economically, if I can better educate my people, if I can provide programming for my people so that they can live a little better and enjoy the finer things in life like everybody else is doing. Everybody else is living that quote unquote American dream, but us, for us, it's a nightmare. So what you have to do is you have to go into the schools, you have to go into the community 
and you have to give them programming and ways to do things a little bit better and do for self. Now, I, I know that according to what we're talking about now, we're going to get into the politics and, and things like that in the future. But I'm, I'm just talking I'm talking about specifically just engaging the community, period. I, I want to talk about this. A lot of people in our community, they go to church. They go to church. There's probably five or six churches on every block in the hood. We have to make sure that our churches and the places that we congregate together are conscious enough and are willing enough to advance the African-American community. The same place that takes our tithes and offering needs to be one of the same places that help congregate our community for the betterment of our community, build programs. So why are you saying that? Let me tie in a little history. Back in the slavery days, the church was also a school. Mm -hmm. The preacher was also a teacher. So it's kind of funny that you said that because back in the day, that's how the schoolhouse and the church house was the same thing. But yeah. go ahead, finish, finish what you're saying. You know, I'll say this. The church has gone, the black church has gone away from its design and its role in the civil rights struggle. It has taken a complete turn. Now, we know that during the 50s and 60s, you couldn't do anything without the black church and black pastors in the neighborhood being on the forefront, feeding children, feeding families, creating programs, making sure that the community just is healthy all the way around and advocating actually for the people in the community. But now, now you have all these churches, they're not preaching what they need to be preaching. They're hip, some of them are hypocrites. They just taking our community's money. How is the pastor driving a Beamer, Benz, and Bentley, but your congregation is walking to church? It blows my mind. So the churches have to centralize the civil rights stroke. They have to have some type of, you know, community building a morality so that they can get back to their original purpose, their original calling. We were only placed in the black churches uh, because we weren't allowed in white churches. We don't, we've never functioned like that and we never will function like that. So we have to get back to the churches being the center of the community. And that's how it's gonna work. All these churches on the block and ain't nobody got a program. Ain't nobody got an economical program for their people. Everybody's still walking around poor saying, I'm waiting on Jesus. I'm waiting on Jesus. But if you really read the scriptures, it says we should use money as a defense. We should clothe the clothe less. We should feed the hungry. We should give things back to the widow. We are not doing that. We're not even obeying the simple commandments and taking care of our community. Man. Oh, man. And let me say this, not only are they driving Bentleys and Benzes and Range Rovers, all they focus on is big in a, building a bigger church. Mm. 
What you need a bigger church for when you can't even take pe- take care of the people in the church? Right. At every church that I've attended and, and really enjoyed, their main focus was building a bigger church. Focus on your co- on your congregation. Focus on the people in the church. What you need a bigger church for? Make the community bigger. Build people houses. Why are we building another church? We got a church. Right. Well, yeah, let's not get in all that. That's a whole nother podcast. Yeah, that's, right that's a whole nother podcast, a whole nother topic. But the point I was trying to make was, Chill, is that we have to get together as a community and engage our community. And we have to create programs within our community that starts with the places that we congregate at and the places that we spend most of our time, money, and everything else at. We invest all of these things into the church. The church should be investing back into us. That's one of the ways that we're going to get out of this condition that we're in. Amen to that. Amen to that. All right, so now we're going to go to our last topic of this whole discussion. What does it mean to develop a community politically? Well, what that means is you have a community um, that is knowledgeable about politics and that can engage. We seen one. We seen a great example actually in Georgia, where Stacey Abrams actually flipped the whole state, and not just Stacey Abrams, but it took ten years of mobilization. It took ten years of different organizations partnering together to make this happen. You don't you don't organize or mobilize a community politically in a year or two years or in just the next election. This takes almost a decade of on the ground grassroots work to make sure that our community is not only knowledgeable about politics, but going to put their vote where it matters. And we know that voting matters. Now, we used to have that ideology to think, you know, uh, our vote doesn't count. No, voting is not going to be the end all be all to the sustainability of the black community, to giving the community equity. See, the government can't give you freedom. Let's start there. The government by itself can't give you freedom. The people who took your freedom away can't just give it back to you like that. You have to take charge and you have to take your freedom. And one way to take your freedom is using the system in your advantage to make sure that this country is going to start being built and set up for the people who built this junk for free. So what does this look like? in a post-Trump era. Okay, so number one, and I'm going to speak specifically uh, to Tennessee and to the data that we have in Tennessee. You know, there's not actually, you know, like there is in Georgia, there's actually not enough good data out there for Tennessee. There's not enough African-American, you know, representation at the polls. So what we have to do is we have to retrieve that data so we know what areas to target. I work with Miss Renee Parker, who is uh, the executive director over at Organize Tennessee. 
and she's laid out different plans with different organizations all across Tennessee to make sure that voter suppression is tackled and that voter registration and people at the polls increase. You get what I'm saying? So that's volunteering your time at the polls. That's call getting on the call log, call different people to make sure that they're registered to vote. You have all these organizations, like I said, the Urban League, NAACP, Black Lives Matter, the coalition here in Knoxville, Tennessee. You have Omega Sci-Fi, Kappa Alpha Psi, Alpha Phi. You have all the MPAC doing voter registration and doing events. We have to continue the work that people already have started so that we can retrieve this data so we know what areas that need to be targeted to make sure that they're placing a vote. Now, one thing I'll say is, and, and one thing I'll say about voting and, and having the knowledge of voting, don't vote just because you pledge an allegiance to a political party. Let's be clear. The Republicans or the Democrats, those are just factions. Those are just parties. Um, that sway one way or the other. Both parties still are going to have to have a responsibility to cure this sickness that they let come over America. And that's the plague of racism. That's the plague of poverty in the African-American community. So we have to stop voting because mama voted Democrat or mama or daddy voted Republican. We have to get into our communities, voice what we want and what we need in our communities, and then vote for the candidate that best has a plan to tackle these issues. So your candidate could be independent. We don't need to be afraid to vote for people that actually have an African-American social economic plan designed specifically for us. And if they don't, then we should not be placing our votes to people just because they're a part of a political party that we've been voting for for all of our lives and mama and daddy voted for. Them. The parties at one point in time flipped. So we have to understand that this is a cycle that goes on and it swings on a pendulum. And it can go either which way in whatever year or whatever decade. We have to be conscious of our community. So that means you got to get up, call your elected officials, vote for the state representative, vote for the governor, vote for the mayor. You need, I've talked to the mayor probably 30 times just this year on what I'm doing in the community and things that need to improve in our city. Y'all can do the same thing. You just have to get involved. There's plenty of people doing the work. You can pick one organization and I promise you it will make a heap of difference. Mm, 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 mm. Say you talked to the mayor yourself 20 times? Over 30 times. I, look, you have to understand this. I put myself with this job, I put myself in a position where I constantly have to advocate for the young adults here in Knoxville, Tennessee. So that means if I have to get on the phone and talk to an assistant, I have to get in the neighborhoods when you know how your mayor like to walk through the neighborhood and get a little cameo. I'm there making sure that the people are properly represented, along with many other people who are doing this work and who are committed to this work. I'm just picking up where 
a generation of people left off. You still have your uh, Stan Johnsons who have a workforce development program in Knoxville, Tennessee, that's been flourishing. You still have uh, your Kathy Max who make sure that black nonprofit organizations are getting the proper funding that's needed. You still have these people in the community putting in work and have been putting in work for years. And what I'm doing is continuing that work by staying true to the mission and staying true to the cause and, and staying true to our people. Okay, okay. So according to a report from UNFC in 2016, Mm -hmm. Building a better narrative about black education is initial to improving community development. Building a better narrative involves understanding what the community is saying. Building a better net narrative involves promoting and investing in high quality reforms and initiatives. Building a better narrative involves not only underscoring educational inequity, but truly celebrating success. Building a better narrative involves promoting the urgency of now. Mm. So how can we start to change these statistics and what can community, what can the community do to move these stats in the right direction? All right. So the first thing you have to do is like we've been saying for the last hour, Get your butt up and get involved. Get into an organization, do the work. If you want to complain about what's going on in the community, you need to be at those city county meetings. You need to be at those school board meetings. We just had a school board meeting the last seven hours. Now we, we're thinking in our heads, people can't afford to go to that. They gotta work, they gotta do this. But there's people running their mouths in the community and not getting up and doing their due diligence. So we have to get involved to make sure that the education of our people is flourishing. Self-educating yourself. You have these mobile devices, you have these laptops, all of this technology. Why are we not learning new things? Get your butt up. Stop just watching these CNNs and Foxes and MSNBCs and go get involved in your community. And I think the best way to get involved in your community is picking one or two things that you are truly passionate about that has affected your life specifically. And once you identify those one or two things, then go find an organization that's actually contributing to bettering that cause. I know that my cause is education and poverty because that's people in my, there's people in my life that was affected by the lack of education and cyclical poverty. So I'm working my butt off to make sure that I am getting these opportunities for people that I grew up with and beyond. This affects not only our children, but our children's children. If we don't get involved, if we don't get in the organization, if we don't, do, don't just go on Thanksgiving, cook a turkey, and, and gives out dressing and, and cranberry and all that stuff, you know, because it feels good. Don't just go on Christmas and buy a toy for a child. I'm not saying don't do it. I'm just saying don't make that your only charitable gift that you can give every year. Make sure you're doing your due diligence and it starts chill. It really starts in the home. 
Education starts in the home. Our parents are going to have to stop worrying about your life is over when it comes to just worrying about yourself. Now you have a whole human being to worry about. Now you have to make sure this child is going to be raised in a safe environment and an environment conducive for their learning. So make sure that they're reading their books. Make sure you're educating them on these issues. Let's talk about critical race theory now that they're trying to take it out of the schools. Let's talk about it in the home so that we can start to move how we should move. That's how you start to change it. That's how you make progress. It starts in the home. It starts in your community. Okay. So couple couple facts i'm gonna throw in here the poverty rate is still highest for black students in in 2018 almost one-third of black students lived in poverty 32 percent zero compared to 10 percent of white students and families living in poverty mm. data from the national school boards association shows that the poverty rate is still the highest for black students. A lack of internet access at home has become a barrier for black students to learn. A high percentage of black students attend high poverty schools. More black students with disabilities receive services for emotional disturbances. The disproportion the disproportion between black students and black teachers has not been improved the achievement gap between black and white students has not been closed and school dropout rate keeps high among black students graduation graduation rates and college enrollment rates remain low among black students what sort of leg, leg, legislation? Golly, boy, I'm tongue twisting like a mud over here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. What sort of legislation and rhetoric are involved with making these positive changes at the local level? All right. So, number one, uh, we have to find a way uh, to further fund the public school system. We have to find a way to make sure that each school has the same opportunity to learn the same amount of material. There's no reason why a Austin East High School shouldn't have all of the college ready and AP courses that they can have. There's plenty of students that are scoring high in that school uh, to make it well qualified uh, for those higher education uh, and career development type of classes. Another thing, we have to make sure that we increase the number of African-American teachers that they allow into the schools. We have to create more, number one, but also, two, we have to make sure that these schools uh, are hiring qualified teachers of color. Twelve percent is the makeup of African-American teachers in America. It's only twelve percent. That is crazy. And these jobs are being taken by those who don't look like us and also being taken by those who don't mind uh, to work a job with lower wages like that. So we have to create an environment where there's more support, not only for the student, but also for the African-American teachers 
that go into these neighborhoods. And what you'll see is, like I said before, you'll see burnout and you'll see things not going how they're supposed to go. You'll see teachers not really caring. So, you know, what do they do? They got stressors. They got children at home that they got to worry about. And then they have to come and teach 40 and 50 kids to make sure they're all on the same track. So your kid might need special attention or special help and they'll never get it. Uh, because there's just not enough resources in the inner city schools. I don't even like to use that word inner city, but uh, in our public school system, there's just way uh, too many resources that are not being filtered in. Another thing uh, that uh, we have to stop doing is allowing our schools to mimic prisons. You know, why do we have SROs or student resource officers just walking around the school. I understand safety is important, but when a child is, you know, talking out of turn or may have a behavior issue, why is the first person that they see is a police officer? So now you've already uh, tarnished the psychology of the black child of the minority student by sending them a police officer as negative reinforcement. And then you have situations like you have here in Knoxville, Tennessee, where our young brother, Mr. Thompson, literally got gunned down in the bathroom. Now you can make whatever speculation you wanna make. You can say that he brought a gun into the school. You can say whatever you wanna say. The truth and the fact of the matter is, it shouldn't have been handled like that. And our child should still be here today. There should not be police officers being the first point of contact for children who have who have behavioral issues in the black community. It has to stop. All right. Last question. And this is an important one. How can other communities help build equity for black people? Well, number one, they have to agree and accept the fact that black and african-american people across this nation have been disenfranchised and have been oppressed for so many years we can't keep overlooking at the systemic things that cause black and african-american people in america to fall under the line to lack what they lack so Number one, there has to be a consciousness amongst all races of people in America to accept the fact that that is an issue and that over 400 years of slavery and and building this country for free affects that. Number two, you have to get white Americans to understand that they have to right their wrongs. You have to get them to understand that they're not too much different especially poor white folks, they think that they're so high over black people. We're not too much different. The same policies and the same laws affect us, but you think just because you are white, you have the right to further oppress the black community. We have to change that ideology completely, and we have to accept the fact that there needs to be programming and reparations Uh, for the black community in order for us to survive and thrive in an equitable nation. But until the nation uh, comes to that consciousness, 
will forever be in the ebb and flow of this disaster of a dream uh, <laughs> that, you know, all of these people have envisioned. You know, they've turned Martin Luther King's dream into a nightmare. And you wonder why uh, the rate of violence and different stuff like that has increased. It's because America is un unhemming itself. It's, it's really folding at the seams because America is eating itself alive. We're killing ourselves. So what people have to do is they have to first understand and create a collective consciousness to do better for the black community and also to make sure that there's funding and programs to highlight different areas that uh, issues that plague the black community so that the black community can improve. It, and it has to be a collective action. It can't just be uh, white folks because we, we were oppressed by more than just white folks. It has to be everyone come to that consciousness and everyone working hard for that. So being a part of these programs that boost the African-American community, making sure that you're paying all these big business owners, making sure that you're paying the, the workers you have that are majority black, majority minority uh, people working for you. Make sure they have a livable wage. Make sure they are getting more than just the minimum wage. You can't survive off that. You couldn't survive off it nowhere else. And you definitely can't survive off of it here in America. We have to do better. We have to gain an understanding of one another. And I think that's really important. Man, such a deep discussion today, man. Uh, let me say this. America has to come to the point where we're all equal. There shouldn't be no uh, race being treated different than another race we all equal because in god's eyes we are equal we all bleed bleed the same color the only thing different imagine a world where everybody looked the same that's why god made us different what would it be like for everybody to look the same couldn't even imagine it so the thing about it man we gotta learn to treat each other with love and respect when we all live like that, America and the world would be a better place. And that's all of it in a nutshell. But thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story, Tommy, and lending your voice. Tell the listeners how they can get in touch with you or find you on social media. All right. So uh, on uh, Facebook, you can find me at Tony Gunn the second. That's T O N Y G U N N Roman numeral two. You will see me on there. Also, I'm very active on Instagram, so you can see some of the videos of students and, and active programming that we have for the Leadership Foundation here in Knoxville uh, at Teflon Gun. That's T E F L O N G U N N. And also, too, you can reach me on Twitter at Gun for Real. That's G-U-N-N, -N, the number four, and R-E-A-L, Gun For Real. Those are my tags. You can find me, DM me, and message me if you want to be involved into any programming or you want to give back to the community. I have so many things that you can get involved in and so many resources that you could help put back into our community. There it is.
There it is, my brother, Tony Gunn. Hey, so the next episode will be uh, every Sunday at 3 p.m. Be sure to tune in every Sunday at 3 p.m. And as you continue to listen, I just want you to know that I love and appreciate you. We will be back for another episode on Spotify, on Facebook, on any podcast platform, and definitely on Anchor. And you can also uh, drop support. There is a support tab there you can drop because, as y'all know, this takes time. It takes money, and all support is appreciated. So please drop your support if you can to help out Chill on Wheels as we grow into a mega podcast platform and uh, please just tune in when you can and if you can't catch it at 3 p.m on sunday you can catch it anytime on spotify for sure i appreciate y'all i love y'all y'all have a blessed day and this is chill on wheels Concludes this episode of Chill on Wheels Chillin with your wheels. host Big Red. Make sure you Chillin follow Big wheels. Red on everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Big Red Chill 87. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Chill on Wheels. Mm-hmm. Chill on Wheels. Mm-hmm. Chill on Wheels. Yeah. Mm-hmm.